0: We'll keep you posted about what's happening next. And finally, please subscribe to this podcast and don't forget to like and share these recordings with your friends because it matters what you think.
1: So, do you believe in miracles? Can such belief be reasonable? I don't know if anybody recognizes that fellow there. (laughs) <laughs> uh, Richard Dawkins, um, uh, if you know him, he, he, he's a writer, uh, you know, biologist that, that does a lot of popular writing in science and and, and dabbles, I would say, in, in philosophy and theology, and is a, a, a very earnest uh, evangelist for the cause of atheism. And so um, here's uh, the sort of thing that he would say about you if you... Uh, do believe in miracles and uh, think that it's reasonable to do so. It's the virgin birth, the resurrection, the raising of Lazarus, the manifestations of Mary and the saints around the Catholic world. Even the Old Testament miracles all are freely used for religious propaganda and very effective they are with an audience of unsophisticates and children. Unsophisticates and children are the sort of people uh, who might go in for belief. In miracles. Um, he says, uh, in another place, any belief in miracles is flat contradictory, not just to the facts of science, but to the spirit of science. Uh, maybe you would expect that for a, an evangelist for, for atheism. Um, uh, but interestingly enough, you get similar kinds of statements coming from, from all places, all quarters, uh, from certain theologians, 20th century theologians. Uh, here's John Macquarie. Uh, uh, he says, uh, the tr- traditional conception of miracle is irreconcilable with our modern understanding of both science and history. Okay? Um, I was reading about Macquarie. I had read some of his work before a while back, but I was reading about him on Wikipedia uh, for what it's worth, but they they quote someone, uh, he was actually an Episcopal priest, and and, uh, they quote someone saying he was the most important systematic theologian among the Episcopal or Anglican church in the latter half of the 20th century, and here's what he says about miracles. Another uh, very prominent uh, biblical scholar theologian from the Earlier part of, of the 20th century though here this is from 1961 he says it is impossible to use electric light and the wireless and to avail ourselves of modern medical and surgical discoveries and at the same time to believe in the New Testament world of spirits and miracles okay. um. So I, I can imagine the, the devil here thinking, you know, with theologians like these, who needs atheists, right? <laughs> um, but there it is. Um, uh, if you, it's not possible to avail yourself of medical technology and believe in, in miracles. Um, well, interestingly, uh, you know, surveys have been about about you know belief in, in miracles among say people in the United States. Uh, Survey back in 2010 by the Pew Research Center indicates that about 80% of Americans believe in miracles. Um, A survey a bit earlier, but here in the 21st century, uh, said that uh, 74% of doctors believe in miracles. I guess uh, Bultmann didn't consult them when he said you couldn't avail yourself of medical technology and believe in miracles at the same time. 55% of doctors uh, in this survey (laughs) said they have seen treatment results that they consider to be Miraculous. So we want to talk tonight about, about miracles, uh, uh, what a miracle is, and whether or not it could be reasonable to believe in one, that one has actually occurred. So uh, I want to first just get clear on what we mean by a miracle, and then I want to look at a couple of objections or really types of objection to miracles. Uh, one objection holding that, that miracles are just impossible one type of objection, I should say, because they're, they're versions of it, and another type that believing that a miracle occurred uh, can't be reasonable, it can't be a reasonable thing to believe, whether or not they're possible. I mean, even if they are possible, it still couldn't be reasonable to actually believe that this miracle in particular happened, okay? All right, so what is a miracle? Some of you may recognize this fellow, you would expect we might uh, reference uh, St. Thomas and a talk uh, from the Thomistic Institute. Um, Thomas uh, says in the Summa Theologiae, uh, he says, those things which God does outside those causes we know are called miracles. So miracles are are things God does outside the causes we know. You might ask, you know, what sort of causes do we know? I think he thinks we, the kind of causes we know are what we might call natural causes, right? The kind of causes we encounter in the world, the kind of causes we might study, right, in the various sciences and so on and so forth. Those are the causes we know. A miracle is something that God does outside those causes. He says uh, in another place, those things uh, must properly be called miraculous, which are done by divine power apart from the order generally followed by things. But what's the order generally followed by things? It's the order of natural causes. So this is miracles are things God is doing outside that order. I, the suggestion here is that a miracle is going to be something sort of unusual. The order that things normally follow are the order of natural causes. A miracle is something unusual that God is doing outside that order of natural causes. Um, a contemporary uh, author writing on miracles gives a very similar sort of different definition uh, as, as Aquinas, really. Uh, just adding to the point that it, you know, it expresses and furthers God's purposes. A miracle does, and it may give some religious significance and so on. Okay, so what what a miracle is, uh, uh, and I think it's it's worth thinking a little bit about the relationship between uh, God, uh, the natural, and the miraculous. Okay, um, so to begin with. Um, and this is just going to kind of be a, a background assumption here, but it's something that I think would be held to by the, the mainstream of the, of the theological tradition, certainly St. Thomas would, would agree with this, is that all the workings of natural causes, everything that natural causes do, they're also the workings of God, okay? So it's not like if you can explain why, you know, it rained last Tuesday in terms of natural causes, like a meteorologist might be able to do, right it doesn't follow from the fact that there were natural causes of that rain that god wasn't also in order in, in bringing about that rain uh, it's not an either or it's a it's a both and here and the reason for that is that god is the source of the existence of everything that exists apart from himself so whatever natural causes are bringing about rain god is is the source of those causes and the source of of what they're bringing about right the whole story at the level at the level of natural causes and so, they're the workings of God as well. Um, events have natural explanations right? if and only if they have natural causes. So, for an event to have a natural explanation, it's got to have a natural cause. But a miracle, as we just saw in, the, in our definition in the previous slide, uh, miracles are brought about by divine power without natural causes. And so it follows that, that miracles don't have natural explanations. Okay? Their explanation is something else, it's not a natural explanation. Now I think, it, I think we can see from that that our ability to recognize something as miraculous, our ability to recognize an event as miraculous, depends on our ability to recognize it as something that is not explicable in terms of natural causes. And and if if we have to be able to recognize something that's not explicable in terms of natural causes, to recognize it's a miracle, then that means that to recognize a miracle, we must know uh, what natural causes produce. We've gotta have a knowledge of natural causes and what they tend to bring about in order to recognize that something has happened that can't be explained by natural causes. Well, uh, how can we come to know uh, natural causes and what natural causes tend to produce? Well, we can know what natural causes produce, uh, it would seem, only if the vast majority of events that we experience are explicable in terms of natural causes that produce predictable outcomes. So what what provides the context in which we can recognize if something not being explained in terms of natural causes, is that we have knowledge of natural causes, but to have knowledge of natural causes requires that things operate in a very regular and predictable way most of the time. And so uh, what I think all that means is that find that we couldn't really recognize miraculous events as miraculous unless miracles were rare. That is, unless they were the exception and not the rule. And I say, if if if, if God uh, was going wanted to perform miracles and He wanted us to be able to recognize some some things as miraculous, right? There's a certain kind of world He's going to need to create. It's going to need to be a world in where uh, most things are not happening that are happening or not ha- are miracles, right? They have natural causes, natural explanations, right? Uh, that we can come to learn so then we can recognize when there's an exception to them, when there's an event that happens that doesn't have a miraculous cause. Okay, so the reason, uh, you might say, why a, a miracle would be something that is rare, right? That is atypical, right? That, that is kind of built into our ability to be able to recognize it as a miracle in, in the first place. All right. So I said we were going to look at a couple of uh, objections to uh, the types of objections, really, to miracles. And that's what really what the bulk of the talk is going to be looking at, is these objections and what we might uh, want to say about them. And the first type of objection would be the objection that miracles are just impossible. Right? They're just impossible. And there are three variations that, that I'm I know of that this takes, uh, or reasons you might think that miracles are impossible. One is if you just think, well, God doesn't exist. There is, there is no God. Now, if that's right, then, of course, miracles, as we've been defining them, are impossible, because we've been defining them, a miracle is something that is, is done by divine power, that God does outside, right, natural causes. So if there's no God, there are no miracles. Um... um well, I mean, this, this talk is not about the existence of God. I think there, there are reasons, good reasons, to think that uh, God does exist, but that's a different talk. Um, uh, but just, I think it's worth noting that uh, if we thought God did not exist, that'd be a reason to think miracles are impossible, honestly. Yeah. Um, we'll spend a little more time talking about these two other reasons, right? Um, to think that miracles are impossible. The first thing that God couldn't, right, God couldn't perform a miracle and the second being that uh, whether he could or not, he wouldn't, right? There, there are good reasons to think that he wouldn't perform that role. And therefore, it would be impossible for them to happen. So uh, why think God uh, couldn't perform a miracle? I guess another uh, contemporary theologian um, who gives us a, maybe a little glimpse at, at why someone might think that. He says, our current perception of the world as a closed nexus of events renders the idea of God intervening in the world to rupture its God given regularities incoherent. So, here, here seems to be the reason uh, proposed why God couldn't perform a miracle or that it would be incoherent for him to do so is that, that the world is a closed system, right? It's a closed system of events that maybe God brought about in the beginning or something like that. But once it's brought about, there's no, not even God, right, could, could enter that closed system uh, and, and bring about some event that is not explicable by other events within that system. Okay? Is that a plausible picture, though? Um, doesn't seem very plausible to me. Now, I don't think it, it, it seems very plausible uh, uh, to St. Thomas, and I think uh, he does—he articulates really well, what, without a, actually directly addressing this objection, of course, why an, an objection like this to God's performing miracles wouldn't make any sense. In this passage, I'm going to read it, he uses the, the term secondary cause. Okay, uh, What he means by that is is just what I've meant by natural cause, so I'm just going to Wherever he says secondary cause, I'm going to say natural cause, just so that we're all on the same page. So Thomas says, if if we consider the order of things depending on any natural cause, God can do something outside such order. For he is not subject to the order of natural causes, but on the contrary, this order is subject to him. Why? Well, it's subject to him as as proceeding from him. The order of natural causes comes from him in the first place. Uh, And it it comes from him not by a natural necessity, but by the choice of his own will. For he could have created another order of things altogether than the one that he's created. Wherefore, God can do something outside this order created by him when he chooses. Uh, in what way might he do something uh, outside the order of natural causes created him? Well, for instance, he says, by producing the effects of natural causes without them. So maybe he brings about some effect that a natural cause could bring about, but does it without the natural cause, right, is participation. Or by producing certain effects to which natural causes do not extend. So maybe he brings about some effect that no natural cause could bring about but the divine power can. There's another way he could do this, which uh, is not, Thomas doesn't mention here, but would agree with it. Um, uh, God might not, uh, the, the traditional language here is he might not concur with a natural cause that's bringing about a particular effect. Uh, in order for that effect to exist, God has to, to bring it, about its existence and sustain its existence and if God chooses not to do that right that would be another way that a natural cause might fail uh, in its usual effect. But the, the key idea here is the, the objection seems to suggest that once God creates the universe somehow somehow he is limited or constrained by it uh, such that he can't couldn't do anything in, in that universe outside what natural causes do right? But that gets things backwards, uh, uh, Thomas wants to say here. Rather, it's not that the, the, the natural order of causes, I mean, God's not subject to it, right? He's subject to God. God's the one who has created it and sustains it. He could have created a different order of causes altogether, right? And so this particular reason uh, for thinking uh, that God could perform miracles and therefore that miracles are impossible seems, uh, seems uh, backwards. Okay. What about the, the idea uh, that God wouldn't perform a miracle um, is, a, is, a, is a different kind of reason for thinking that they're impossible. God wouldn't um, Some have, have thought that he wouldn't. Um, for reasons such as the following, so here's Voltaire. He says, It's impossible that a being, infinitely wise, can have made laws of nature to violate them. He could not derange the machine. Thinking of the universe here as a machine, he could not derange the machine, but with a view of making it work better. But it is evident that God, all wise and omnipotent, originally made this immense machine, the universe as good and as perfect as he was able so the suggestion seems to be here that the, the only uh, reason that God would have uh, to perform a miracle, uh, to do something outside the order of nature, is that he sort of screwed up in, in, in what he created in the first place, If the universe uh, had uh, defects in its initial creation that he was then diving in in order to repair, to fix. But the idea that there are defects in his original creation that needed to be fixed seems to be not in keeping uh, with his, uh, his wisdom and his power and his goodness, and so God wouldn't do it. Right? Um, so that's Voltaire, right? Uh, the Enlightenment thinker, but you get a similar kind of thought here from a contemporary author, Paul Davies, uh, a contemporary physicist who, who writes some on religion, questions of religion and science. He, he says, I loathe the idea of a God who interrupts nature, who intervenes at certain stages and manipulates things. It would be a very poor sort of God who created a universe that wasn't right, and then tinkered with it at later stages. Similar sort of idea that Vol- Voltaire has. It seems like the only the only thought of the, a motive God can have for performing a miracle would be to fix something that He made defective in the first place. But what sort of God would have made something defective in the first place? did not make any sense, right? Um. Well, I wanna suggest that Voltaire and Davis here have, have a limited imagination, perhaps, about uh, the motives God might have for performing a miracle. So let's consider some others. Uh, 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 he might perform a miracle as a sign of love or special favor to someone. It has nothing to do with fixing some defective defect in the universe he originally made, but just as a sign of, of love or special favor he might perform a miracle as a sign of his existence. Uh, if a miracle is something that is not explicable in terms of natural causes, right, but only explicable in some sort of, in terms of some sort of uh, supernatural power, power outside of nature, then the, a miraculous event would point to something, some supernatural power, and therefore would be at least some sort of corroborating evidence, right, of, of God's existence that can strengthen belief, and that might be a reason that God... Would perform miracles another reason he might perform a miracle uh, is to authenticate a teaching as a divinely revealed teaching a teaching that ultimately is coming from from god so you, you may be familiar you probably are many of you with the idea of divine revelation right divine religion god's communicating certain truths to us right there are yeah. things truths we might know because we thought really hard about them whether from an armchair, like we philosophers like to do, or whether from a lab, you know, but, uh, but then there's truths we might come to know because God has revealed them to us, told us so, right? But if He tells us so, He's gonna have to tell us so through some, someone who, in a way, is, is His mouthpiece, a prophet, right? An, an apostle, a teacher of divine wisdom. How, how do we know, though, who the teachers of divine wisdom are, right? What's gonna be a sign? that somebody who is speaking uh, and, 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 and speaking uh, truths that are from God. How will we know that? Well, um, St. Thomas says uh, mi- miracles might be one way. So he says God enables uh, a man to work miracles for two reasons. And then the first one he says is uh, the principal reason is in confirmation of the doctrine that a man teaches, so that when a man does works that God alone can do, we may believe that what he says is from God. So here's, here's somebody, right, who's, who's speaking, seems to speak with, with authority. Um, we might be inclined to think maybe he's, he's a mouthpiece of God in some way, a prophet or something. He's giving us divine revelation. Well, one thing that could authenticate that is, that he performs miracle, he does something that only god has the power to do or enable, or to enable him uh, to do um, uh, william Paley, the 18th century uh, theologian philosopher says something very similar as he puts it he, he actually puts it in the form of a question it's he says in what way can or you might say could a divine revelation, re- could a divine revelation be made uh, but by miracles and none which we are able to conceive, right? But the only way to, to authenticate or confirm that something is a genuine divine revelation would be through its connection to the miraculous is a way of showing that it is from God. Um, and so Thomas, again, will point in particular to Christ as Christ uh, worked miracles in order to confirm his doctrine and in order to show forth his divine power. So, why think miracles impossible? Uh, one reason would be God doesn't exist. Okay, a topic for another, uh, another night. Uh, one reason would be uh, God couldn't perform miracles, right? That, that somehow, like, you know, like sometimes you might uh, tighten a lid on a jar so tightly that you can't open it. Right, you know, God might create a world, but then once He's created, it's sort of there, and there's not, there's nothing you can do miraculously with it. Right, um, uh, doesn't seem a very plausible in, uh, a way of, of thinking about the relationship between God and the world. Though, fourth reason, a third reason would be God wouldn't perform miracles because the only motive He could have is to fix a defective creation. But of course, there there are a lot of other motives that God might have for uh, performing miracles. All right. So let's um, let's move on to the second sort of uh, objection to miracles, and and this is an objection that doesn't focus so much on whether miracles are possible or not, but but rather whether or not we can be reasonable in believing that a miracle has actually occurred. Okay. Well. So let's say even if it's possible, even if some of this objective might say even if miracles are possible, right? You could never be reasonable in believing that one happened. And here I want to look at, at two arguments inspired uh, by David Hume, 18th century uh, Scottish Enlightenment philosopher. Um, but I think, though they're they're Humean in inspiration, I think they reflect the sort of arguments that people who think belief in miracles is unreasonable We, we think today right um, so one is is a, I'll call the conflict argument and in particular it's, it has to do with conflict with the laws of nature and the second the, uh, the improbable testimony argument so let's go to the conflict argument so here's here's the way Hume puts it he says a miracle is a violation of the laws of nature and as a firm and unalterable experience has established these laws, the proof against the miracle, from the very nature of the fact, is as entire as any argument from experience can possibly be imagined. A miracle is a violation of the laws of nature, but we, we couldn't have any better right, evidence than we have than the evidence we have for the laws of nature and so that evidence that we have for the laws of nature also amounts as evidence against any violation of the laws of nature, that is against any miracle. Okay. seems to be what he was saying. Now, I think we can, we can benefit by trying to set out the logic of this argument carefully. Um, uh, and and this, is, this is my interpretation. Sometimes people debate over what's the best way to interpret Hume's arguments and objections to miracles but this seems to me this is the only way i can make sense of of the argument and so let's let's uh, talk through it so it starts off with uh what, what Hume starts off with right the idea that a miracle is a violation of the laws of nature all right all right well um if that's right if a miracle is a violation of the laws of nature then a miracle's having happened a miracle happened it would show that a law of nature is false. Now, I, I think in order to make sense of Hume's objection, you've got to see him as thinking that that second premise is true. That what it means to say that a miracle is a violation of the laws of nature is that a miracle's having happened means the law of nature is false. Okay. Well. If a miracle having happened would show that a law of nature is false, then we can't reasonably believe both the miracle and the law of nature. Right? If a miracle would show that the law of nature is false, then to to think that the law of nature, that the miracle is true, that it truly happened, would be to think that the law of nature is is false, which means you can't believe in both, right? Um, Well, if you can't reasonably believe both the miracle and the law of nature, you can't reasonably believe in the both, then between them, we should believe whichever has the stronger evidence and disbelieve whichever has the weaker evidence. Now, if you take premise is one through four, you get an inference at five. Okay, therefore, between the miracle and the law of nature, we should believe whichever has the stronger evidence and disbelieve whichever has the weaker evidence. And I think you can see where this is going in the next premise, right? Which has the stronger evidence? I think that Hume or Humean. Part of this argument is gonna to wanna to say, the evidence for the law of nature is always stronger than the evidence for the miracle. Why is that? Well, because we, we have tons of experience, right, of lots of different people over a long period of time, right, that is supporting, right, belief in that law of nature, right? Whereas, I mean, at the most, whatever, experience or testimony that is this evidence counts as evidence for the miracle is going to be much more limited than that, right? So the thought is the evidence for the law of nature is always going to be stronger than the evidence for the miracle. And so the conclusion, we should always believe in the law of nature and disbelieve in the miracle in every case, right? It can't be reasonable to believe that the miracle happened. This is an interesting argument, I think. Uh, if we think that it can be reasonable to believe in miracles, we've got we've to think that, that one of the premises of this argument is false, right? And I think one is, uh, and I think it, it, it is pretty obviously false, actually, uh, but, it, but it may take a second to appreciate why. I think it's, it, it, it goes wrong from the beginning. I think that the problem is in premise one, right? Understanding a miracle uh, to be a violation of, of the laws of nature. Uh, i'm gonna I'm gonna have us look at this passage' um, spooky uh, p- picture uh, this is uh, a passage from uh, John Stuart Mill who is is not uh, a, you know a, no friend of I think um, the church really <laughs> of, of Christianity but um, but here I think he sees rather clearly the, the problem with the view that there's some sort of contradiction between a miracle and, and laws of nature. He's gonna call, use the language here, not law of nature, but law of causation, but I think he means basically the same thing, okay? Here's what, what Mill says. He says, in order that any alleged fact should be contrary to a law of causation, you can fill in law, law of nature, right? Um, in order for any, any alleged fact should be contradictory to a law of causation, the allegation must be not simply that the cause existed without being followed by the effect, for that would be no uncommon occurrence, but that this happened, in other words, the cause existing without the effect, that this happened in the absence of any adequate counteracting cause. Now, in the case of an alleged miracle, the assertion is the exact opposite of this. It is that the effect was defeated not in the absence, but in consequence of a counteracting cause, namely a direct interposition of an act of the will of some being who has power over nature. A miracle is no contradiction to the law of cause and effect. It is a new effect, supposed to be produced by the introduction Of a new cause. I don't know if that makes sense to you, but I'm going to try to uh, try to explain it uh, in terms of of maybe some some examples. Okay. So let's take a a given uh, a law of nature. We'll just call it L. Okay, it could be any law of nature, but uh, but any given law of nature tells us what effects. Follow from a natural cause X, any natural cause, in a given set of conditions C. Right? For example, it tells us that that flames applied to wood, when the wood is dry under those conditions, will ignite the wood. Okay, that's what a law, the sort of thing that a law of nature uh, will will tell us or will say. So. If we change the conditions, right? for example, if the wood is wet, it's no violation of that law L that we were just talking about. It's no violation of that law L that the wood does not ignite Because the condition C, which specified that law L, no longer holds. The law said, right, the wood, when dry, right, you, you apply flames, it will ignite, right? That's what the law says. It's no violation of that law that when you apply the flames when the wood is not dry but wet that it doesn't die. There's no violation of the law at all. The law tells us what happens in condition C, not what happens in some other set of conditions. Well, in the same way, if we add that God is intervening, you want to use that word, God is intervening to perform a miracle. It's no violation. Of a law of nature, since the law tells us what happens in conditions that don't include God's intervention. So here are the conditions that have changed, if you will, right? So there can be no, be no violation of the law unless we have a different result in the very same conditions that, that specify the law. If you change those conditions, then the law is no longer in, in play, and so there's no violation of the law. Um, A contemporary philosopher here uh, puts it this way. Uh, He says, miracles are occurrences having causes about which laws of nature are simply silent. Laws of nature are simply silent about the cause of a miracle. The laws are true, but simply don't speak to the events caused by divine power, caused by divine interventions. So again, uh, I think the conflict argument, the conflict with laws of nature argument, it goes wrong from the very beginning in the assumption that a a miracle is a violation of the law of nature, especially where that's understood to mean that the occurrence of a miracle would mean the law of nature is false, right? That's where it goes wrong. Um, And so uh, since there's no violation of a law of nature, uh, there's no conflict. Um, between miracles and and laws of nature, between believing a miracle has occurred and believing in the laws of nature. Believing the a miracle does not require us to believe that any law of nature is violated or false. Uh, And so uh, we can continue to believe in laws of nature on the the basis of the evidence that we have for them. we, We can and should continue to believe in them while also believing that miracles occur on the basis of, of the evidence that we have for them. And of course, this is in fact what a lot of people do. There are a lot of people who believe in the laws of nature. Here we have a, a, a priest who's a biologist, and some of you, he actually gives talks for the Thomistic Institute. Uh, um, Father Nicanor Ostriaco, who's, uh, who's part of the, the community that sponsors uh, the Thomistic Institute. He's a biologist at Providence College, right? Uh, he studies among, them. yeah. He's researching in laws of nature. I bet he believes in miracles too. Um, no conflict because okay. no violation. Okay. The last uh, argument, objection I wanna look at, uh, is it's also obj- objection to the belief in, uh, to reasonable belief that you could, you could reasonably believe in a miracle. Uh, in particular, uh, believe in it on the basis of testimony, right? So I, you know, I, I kind of left off here saying, um, you know, we can continue to believe in the laws of nature based on the evidence we have for them, while continue to believe in miracles on the basis of the evidence we have for miracles. Well, what evidence might we have for miracles? Well, one might be some evidence that we've uh, sort of engaged, uh, we witnessed firsthand. But, but presumably, a lot of people believe in miracles based on testimony, what other, others have told them. Um, I mean, Christians, the foundational miracle of Christianity, you know, the resurrection of Christ, is something that you know, 21st century Christians believe. Uh, I, I take at least the vast majority of them, not because they witnessed firsthand uh, the risen Christ, but, but on the basis of testimony. Well, uh, Hume wants to say, uh, that you can, never be reasonable be, you can never be reasonable to believe in a miracle on the basis of testimony. So that sort of evidence, testimonial evidence for miracles, can never be something that it's reasonable to accept. Here's what he says. He says, No testimony is sufficient to establish a miracle unless the testimony be of such a kind that its falsehood, falsehood of that testimony, would be more miraculous Than the fact which it endeavors to establish. The falsehood of of the testimony would have to be more miraculous than the miracle itself in order for it to be reasonable uh, to believe it on the basis of testimony. Uh, And he he uses a particular example here. He says, uh, When anyone tells me that he saw a dead man restored to life, I immediately consider with myself whether it be more probable that this person should either deceive or be deceived, or that the fact which he relates, that this dead man is raised alive, should really have happened. If the falsehood of his testimony would be more miraculous than the event which he relates, then, and not till then, can he pretend to command my belief or opinion. Okay. Again, I I think it can be helpful. You know, you got a passage like this. I think it can be helpful to unpack it to see its logical structure and understanding uh, um, how the argument goes. So I'm going to do it this way. It'll be a shorter argument than the one we looked at uh, uh, before. So premise one, a person should believe in a miracle, he seems to be saying, a person should believe in a miracle on the basis of testimony only if it's more probable that the miracle occurred than that the testimony is false. But, premise two, it is never more probable that the miracle occurred than that the testimony is false. In other words, he wants to say it is always more probable that the testimony is false. And so what follows? A person should never believe in a miracle on the basis of testimony. Here's the argument again at the top, okay? It's um, an interesting argument. I think it's interesting like the other one. I think these these arguments that it, it couldn't be reasonable to believe in miracles, apart from whether they're possible, I think these are more interesting arguments in a way than the arguments that they're just impossible. Like I think those are just sort of ridiculous, actually. When you, when you look at them, these are a little more tempting, right? Um, I think there's there's still a problem with it. I mean I think I think one thing we need to ask is what does Hume mean when he says that the falsehood of testimony to a miracle the falsehood of a testimony is always more probable or likely than that the miracle actually occurred. Um, I, there there are a couple of options of of, of what this could mean, right? Could mean something like, well, in general, people give false testimony or are mistaken more often than miracles occur. Uh, In other words, if you ask, well, all right, fine. In a month, in a given month, right, in the whole world, right, how many times do miracles occur? How How many miracles occur? And compare that to how many times people are either giving false testimony in the sense of lying or they're just mistaken about something they thought was true or thought that they saw, right? And, and maybe the thought here is, well, it's a lot more often the case that people are mistaken or, or lying or deceiving or something like that than it is that miracles occur. I don't know whether that's true uh, or not, but you can imagine it being true, uh, especially given the fact that, as we said before, uh, it seems like the very nature of the case, if we're going to recognize an event as miraculous, it's got to be a pretty rare event. It's not something that's just happening all the time here. You um, might jettison here, leave us ask questions like, what about miracles that involve, like in the sacraments and things like that? Sort of putting that aside as a separate sort of case. Um, so that might be one thing that's meant it, and, it, and it may be uh, that there, that there's more, more instances of false uh, testimony or just being mistaken, either deceiving or being deceived, than there are miracles occur in a given uh, month. It seems, though, that that's not what's really relevant to this, uh, this argument. Oh, um, well, what happened? Oh, no, sorry. A- another uh, way of, of, of thinking about what, what he means here is, or might need to mean, is the claim that the likelihood that these particular witnesses that we're dealing with, these particular witnesses, the likelihood that they are mistaken, is greater than the likelihood that the miracle to which they are testifying actually occurred. And I think that that's really the, the question that has to be asked. Like, you've got particular testifiers giving testimony under particular conditions, and you've got a particular miracle for which they're testifying. Is the likelihood that they are, what they that their testimony uh, is false? Is that more probable in the likelihood that the miracle occurred. It would have to be something like that, I think, rather than, the, than option A, all right? But that just raises a, another sort of a, a question. Um, what would you support for this judgment be? And it seems like it couldn't be anything other than something like this, right? Just that, that miracles are, are unusual occurrences, right? Something we would all admit. Miracles are unusual occurrences outside the norms, from which he seems to want to say that that the odds that a miracle will take place are so low that it's always a better bet that the person testifying for the miracle is mistaken. Um, I don't know though uh, <laughs> whether that reasoning could be sustained. Some of you are laughing. So uh, I, I so here I just will will say, maybe make a confession. Uh, so I said I live in St. Paul, Minnesota, but I was born and raised in Atlanta, Georgia. So this is a painful picture, you know, scene to look at and memory for me. Super Bowl Fifty One, um, you know that right? Falcons lead the Patriots twenty eight to three midway through the third quarter. Right, cigars were already being lit. You know, champagne uncorked by Falcons long-suffering Falcons fans, right? Oh my goodness. ESPN calculated so you know you can people, just, you know, the sports geeks and nerds and gamblers are like constantly looking for the you know the stats on every little thing. So yeah, they're doing this all the way through the game, right? Uh, ESPN calculated the Falcons win probability. To be basically, I mean, dang well near 100%, right? With like six minutes left to go in the third quarter. Um, real-time betting in Las Vegas was a little bit more uh, modest, but still, I think, had uh, the Falcons having like a 96% chance to win at that point. All right. And while well, some of you uh, know and some of you can guess what happened, right? Didn't know. Final score Super Bowl 51... Patriots 34-28. Uh, that's a super eight ati- that, that, that they came back in those conditions super super unlikely, super unusual, super atypical, right? Um, um, Tom Brady's wife is witch. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or he met he might be, right? I mean, one what one, one yeah, you what has to ask oneself this, you know? Like uh, but Suppose somebody doesn't didn't catch the game, right? And they're listening to the radio, and and the reporter, right, reports that the Patriots came back from yeah, 28 to 3, halfway through the third quarter and won Super Bowl 51, 34, 28. I mean, do you believe them or not? Right? Do you think? it's much more likely that 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 person is either you know playing a hoax on the listeners or that that they're just misreading somehow or (laughs) reading the score wrong they got they got something mixed up in in the report right because that was such an an unusual thing to have happened is that is that the is that the response that would be reasonable is that the response most of us would have probably not right we would probably think as as highly improbable as that was given that um, someone is offering testimony we don't have any reason to think that they're they're you know, lying or deceived, or, and we don't have any counter evidence, we don't have any evidence that, that, that that's not the outcome of Super Bowl 51, uh, the reasonable thing would seem to be to accept the testimony. Um, uh, Robert Warmer, who has a contemporary uh, philosopher, has, I think, a really fine book on, on miracles if you just wanted to read something on it. The legitimacy of miracle. Uh, he makes a similar kind of point as what I just made. He says, unless there exists a conflict between two relevant bodies of evidence, so you have, you have some evidence for, for something that's really unusual happening, but you have, you have good evidence against it too. You have evidence against it. So there's a conflict of evidence. Unless there exists a conflict between two relevant bodies of evidence, it only takes a modest amount of evidence to justify belief. In other words, to make reasonable a belief that an event has occurred, even if the event is rare or unusual. We routinely accept claims with low pre-evidence probabilities on the basis of limited testimonial evidence. If my son, who does not buy lottery tickets, phones to tell me that he found a lottery ticket lying in the street and that when he took it to the store, he was informed that it was the winning number for a jackpot to which he is now entitled, it would seem irrational to inform him that I cannot accept his report since extraordinary claims demand extraordinary evidence. You might think, because the claim is so unusual, I need a lot more evidence I need th- th- than just your your testimony in this. I need, like, I mean, you gotta bring me like a thousand people or something that, that that's can testify to this. No, it's not, we don't need that if we, Even if it's an unusual event, if we don't have counter evidence to it's having happened, even on the basis of fairly limited testimony, it can be reasonable to accept it. So it seems to me that the premise behind Hume's argument, that the unusualness of miracles, which all parties, I think, accept that they they are rare, or maybe even need to be rare in order to be recognized as miracles, uh, that that's always going to make it the case that it, it, it's always uh, more likely that the testimony is false than that the event occurred. Uh, it, it seems uh, not to hold up to the, our normal standards for accepting testimony of things that are unusual. Actually, unusual events uh, happen all the time um, and it can be reasonable to, to believe that they happen on the basis of testimony. So let me summarize uh, the talk and then we can have some uh, some Q&A. Um, in my view in the way, it seems that, that reasons some have given for thinking miracles impossible are, are very weak. It can still be instructive, I think. I mean, uh, worthwhile thinking about why they're weak. You could learn something from doing that, uh, but, I, but it's hard not to reach the conclusion that they're very weak. The arguments that it could never be reasonable to believe that a miracle has actually occurred, um, they're more interesting, but I think ultimately not uh, not persuasive. Uh, So, uh, regarding the conflict argument, um, miracles don't violate laws of nature. So we don't need to pit our evidence for the laws of nature against our evidence for the miracles as as if we have to choose between them. And regarding the testimony argument, uh, just because a thing is atypical, unusual, uh, in a given situation, is no reason not to accept good testimony that it has occurred, especially uh, if we don't have any counter-evidence evidence that it didn't occur. Okay, to so counterbalance that testimony. All right. Uh, so thanks for your attention. I'll stop there, and we can we can discuss uh, whatever you want.
0: Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks